This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. By way of explaining why I decided to pursue an interview with today's guest, Corey Rennell, I just want to read a bit of the Our Story page from his company's website. It goes like this. After a lifetime of experimenting with diet, Corey Rennell traveled the world, subsisting with 12 tribes and studying chimpanzees to get to the bottom of nutrition. <laughs> so already, that's pretty cool. Across the globe, it became clear the secret to nutrition was this simple. Eat mainly whole fresh fruits and vegetables. So the story surprising, the punchline to those of you who listen to this podcast regularly is not. It goes on. Corey further witnessed that every tribe he lived with practiced one universal rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Collaboration is a much deeper part of human nature than our economy gives us credit for. Based on these two principles, Core Foods was born to serve fundamentally nourishing foods in a revolutionary new stewardship model of business that would always focus on health first forever. So we get into all that. His vision is so much bigger than I could have imagined. And I'm happy to say that after almost an hour of conversation, I shared it wholeheartedly and share it still. And now I'd like to share it with you. So without further ado, Corey Rennell, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Okay. So we're going to talk about your uh, current venture, a, a, a produce-only restaurant, uh, Core Foods. But first of all, your biography is kind of wacky and unbelievable, from from my perspective, so I want to, I want to get to you know you 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 traveled the world, you lived with twelve different subsistence tribes, you studied chimpanzees. Where does this start? Did you did you grow up like raised by by silverbacks? Or did you have like a, a normal suburban <laughs> childhood? Well, you know, my um, I grew up in Alaska, so that 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 says enough about people that live out there. But um, you know, I think I I uh, became vegetarian when I was seven, um, uh, mainly uh, after watching the movie Bambi and uh, getting very passionate about animal rights. Um, but then, you know, got got really inspired by the way that um, that diet can change your life, and um, you know, became vegan when I was 11 and, um, and then, and then actually experimented with all sorts of other diets, uh, later in life in my twenties, you know, tried, tried gluten-free and tried paleo and, um, tried all of these different diet fads and sort of, you know, did this bouncing bubble of diets throughout my whole life. And then, um, when I went to college, uh, wanted to study nutrition, but got very frustrated that, um, the entire science of nutrition was very reductionist in a way that really didn't give you enough accurate information about what was going on. It's, you know, you have the three body problem in physics applies to nutrition that when there are too many variables going on, reductionist work doesn't give you really accurate conclusions. So one, you know, you, you can't, you can't really do studies on humans effectively. You can't put humans in cages and feed them hot dogs for 20 years and then show the evidence. Um, so I wanted to figure out 
some other method that we could get more empirical evidence that was that was away from all the correlation studies that you see. You see so many correlations, though chocolate's healthy because of X and wine's healthy because of X, but none of those are causation studies. And so um, there was an opportunity to work with the BBC and Discovery Channel on a project that they were doing around traditional sports all over the world. And I participated in their program and had that opportunity to really experience people living in a subsistence fashion around the world. And I think, you know, the conclusions there were really fascinating, and there's lots of them, but I think, you know, a, a main one is that, um, you know, traditional people eat um, mainly plants, mainly whole plants, about 90, 90 to 95% whole plants. And that's because hunting is dangerous for the most part, and there's not a lot of medical care. Um, well, no, no sort of modern medical care in, in those circumstances. So, um, you know, I think the, the philosophy behind paleo and some diets like that, which are very heavy meat, is really not rooted in, um, in the history, in, the, in human history. Um, but I think the other inter really interesting thing for me is that, um, is that meat is a part of, of traditional diets around the world. And that was really hard for me to hear as a, you know, uh, spending a lot of my life as a vegetarian and a vegan. So, you know, most traditional people eat 5 to 10% meat, and when you look at chimpanzee diets, um, they also eat about 5% prey. So, um, you know, looking at chimpanzees is really interesting because their, their dental formula is exactly the same as ours. And it, we, we have the sense that it takes about 12 to 15,000 years for our physiology to respond to dietary changes. So we've, we've been living as humans in our in our um, in our existing form as a species for for a lot longer than that and um, you know our, our teeth are the same and so you know what I observed in in chimpanzee diets was very similar to what I was experiencing in, in, in diets of traditional people and so that really tells me that our physiology is built for a certain way of eating and that there are a lot of variations where we're very adaptive organisms and we can find food anywhere in anything but, you know, for the most part, we're eating mainly whole plants. So, um, you know, what do we eat in the States? Your, your, your pod, everyone on your podcast says the same thing. You know, your blog says the same thing. Pretty much every nutritionist around uh, in the past 100 years says the same thing, which is we need to eat more whole plants and we're not doing it. And so the question then is why? Um, so, you know, we're, we're a fast-paced um, society and convenience is important to us. And as you mentioned in a lot of the work that you've done, you know, marketing and knowledge are a real problem. And so what we've tried to do at Core Foods is um, find ways to make it really simple and really sexy for people to eat more whole plants. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll get into the business um, soon. I, I'd love to unpack some of the things that kind of tickled me listening to your story. First is gr growing up in Alaska and becoming a vegetarian at the age of seven after seeing Bambi was, I mean, I don't know much about Alaska. Um, you know, un unfortunately, like the my most famous Alaskan in my mind is Sarah Palin, <laughs> who doesn't appear yeah. to be very veg friendly. It seems like there's a very strong, you know, self-sufficient hunting culture. It's hard to grow produce uh, 
up there. Did you get a lot of pushback from from family, from community? Yeah, you know, um, I don't I don't have a window into what it's like to be, um, you know, really discriminated against. But I definitely got a taste for that in um, in trying to be really values oriented in my diet in a place that was that's pretty backward in their comfort with that. Um, so, you know, um, all my friends, members of my family made fun of me, um, would, you know, tell me that dishes were vegetarian when they weren't, um, you know, didn't understand why my diet became the conversation of every single meal I ever had with anyone. Um, it was definitely not easy, but I think like everyone knows that's got a passion when people fight you on it, it just makes you that much more passionate and resolved. So I think, you know, I'm definitely grateful to growing up in that environment that made it so clear to me how important it was that we make changes. Mm. So then you said you studied 12 cultures uh, with the BBC and Discovery looking at their traditional sports. Yeah, the, their focus was, was looking at traditional sports and, um, and having athletes from the West compete with um, traditional people and see how our training in the West ranks up. And I think, as you can imagine, people that uh, are focused on one sport from the age of three um, that, that live in pretty challenging circumstances in the wilderness are pretty incredible athletes. So I think the answer to that question was pretty clear. Um, but uh, I think it was an amazing opportunity for me to spend, you know, two to three weeks in uh, each of these places, everything from Papua New Guinea Senegal, Mexico, Brazil, Mongolia, seeing, you know, all the different corners of the world, um, how people are behaving. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite consistent, which is that, um, you know, these are, these are survival circumstances. It's live or die. And so it's not like, you know, um, something like with the gluten-free movement where we're being, you know, very particular about which part of the plant that we're eating you know, if there's an edible part, if there's an edible thing out there, we are eating it. And for the most part, we are eating the things that are the lowest risk to our health, which are plants. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in their circumstance, harvesting plants is a lot less risky than going and hunting after meat. But it's really, it's interesting that it's so analogous to actually how um, the food behaves in our bodies. And that's probably just because, you know, for the three million years that we've been in here as homo genus on the earth, we've been eating, you know, mainly plants in a significant percentage of our diet. So, um, you know, I think the, the new innovations that we've come up with as homo sapiens, as our species, is that we develop tools and we cook our food. And so you see that in the differences between chimpanzees and us. Um, you know, we had, there are six major reductions in the digestive system between chimpanzees and us, you know, smaller mouth, smaller gut. Um, but that's the only difference is just that it's reduction because we're consuming less total volume of raw plant matter because we're cooking or macerating or doing some of the work that the stomach used to do outside of our bodies. But the constituents of our diet are still the same, which you see reflected in our teeth. Hmm. So I'm, I'm curious because, you know, one, one of the, uh, the frameworks of the, the vegan movement, sort of the ethical vegan movement and sort of anthropological veganism is that sort of eating animals can make us um, 
maybe crueler, more competitive, more testosterone driven. And I'm wondering if there's a correlation that you saw between diet and kind of the nature of those sports that uh, the traditional societies were playing. Were they more more or less competitive? Is there any regression that makes sense here? Or am I just sort of spinning my wheels and <laughs> fantasizing? Um, you know, I don't know that I'm qualified to make that kind of uh, conclusion, but I think what was amazing to me is that in every culture around the world, there was, there was no sense, there wasn't even a sense of individuality. You didn't exist outside of your tribe. Um, anytime there was a problem that presented itself to the community, the question was, uh, even if it's one individual's problem, the question was, how do we solve this together? And I think that was really inspiring to me and inspired the, the business model for Core Foods, which is a 100% reinvestment business. So as the business grows, the money is returned to the business to grow more, to serve the community better, to increase the quality of the food, to lower the cost of the consumer, um, to do more work for the environment. Um, and that's really what all of these traditional people had in common is that, you know, their resources are their resources together. And I think that's really where we've um, taken a track that's different from our history in the past couple hundred years that we've sort of evolved our economics to be about individual ownership when, you know, everyone knows that you're going to die. So the idea that you own anything is real stupid and you're a steward of resources and a vision and your family. Um, and, you know, I think I would really like to see our legal structures and our financial structures start to reflect the, uh, the true nature of human economic systems as they've been for really millions of years. Hmm. So you, you, hmm. I'm trying to formulate a question. There's a lot of buzzing around around that um, because it's it's a challenge to us to not just say, hey, we need to change our diets within this capitalist society. You're saying that there's there's something almost more fundamental than diet from which the, the, the dietary choices spring that maybe even though those people that you lived with and, and, and studied um, were in survival mode, the truth is also that they, they didn't have the kind of inequalities and structural disadvantages that would have had maybe like one, you know, the ruler getting all the meat and everyone else, um, you know, digging for roots and grubs um, is, you know, how, how deep does the, the core foods, core kitchen mission go in terms of reinventing our society? Yeah. So I think, you know, you hit it on the nose, which is that, um, as you've just heard, I am insanely passionate about food and plants and healthy eating, but I would say that it's even, I'd be, I'm even more impassioned about our economic philosophy. And I think, you know, I definitely would encourage you, you know, I think another great guest on your podcast would be Charles Eisenstein, who wrote the book Sacred Economics. And I think what's really cool about that is it's not just him theorizing, it's him laying out in action exactly the things that need to change. And we've definitely reflected in our business model those, those items, which are that, um, you know, one main one is that um, what's wrong with money? You know, uh, money is just a currency of the economy. The, the problem lies a little bit in the structure, which is that money is non-perishable. 
Everything else in the world is perishable. Your food, your life, your house falls apart. You know, everything is perishable with money. And that means that, you know, the people that have the more of this non-perishable substance accrue even more of it over time. So we really should have, instead of positive interest on money, we should have negative interest on money, where the longer you hold it, the less it's worth. Because the health of an economy the most important part of the health of the economy is the velocity of the money, not the volume. And so we want to be sharing resources as much as we possibly can. And we want to, we want to put those resources in the pe- with the people that are willing to take the most risks. Because right now, if you, if you have, you know, the people that, that have the most money are the most risk averse. And that's not going to create innovation in a society. So I think, um, you know, we, we really want to think on a thousand year scale at Core Foods, you know, because we're stewards. Everything that we do here doesn't matter in, 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 unless it carries on. It might be enjoyable, but, you know, in terms of impact, it doesn't matter unless it carries on. And so how can we create an organization and a structure that's so fundamentally intertwined in its, in its self-interest with the interests of the community that it lives on through what the community needs in the future. Mm. So yeah, so I've uh, I've been a fan of Charles Eisenstein for for quite a while. Um, fr- from his early book on on uh, food, the Yoga of Eating, which I don't yep. I don't entirely agree with his nutritional assessment, but the concepts are great to uh, to sacred economics and uh, the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. I would love to have him as a guest if you. Uh, you know, have a have a direct line to his cell phone to put in a, a good word. I don't, but if you get him as a guest, then tell him that he needs to talk to me and help help engineer this business. I will. I will. We're we're, we're Facebook Great. friends, but I don't think he's very active. I think he's off saving the world in his own way. Um, so um, you said you, before we got uh, started recording, you mentioned you had just finished an exhausting month of was a Kickstarter. Yeah, that's right. So that sounds like a uh, a potential growth engine that doesn't compromise those values. You're not you're not going out looking for investors who are expecting, um, you know, ten percent per year, or you know, show me the four year, thirty eight percent payoff. Show me all the, the the risk analytics by doing a Kickstarter. Are you are you able to stay? closer to your to your vision of at least neutral cash, if not, uh, you know, um, perishable cash? Absolutely. So I think, you know, the the fundamentals of our business model is that we do not sell our future for our present. So we do not sell equity. We never will sell equity. The community is what holds equity because we're just stewards of this project. And so I think the funding sources that, that are important to us are you know, uh, working with banks, preferably nonprofit lenders, working with micro lenders, and then crowdfunding. And so I think, um, you know, crowdfunding is becoming a more and more important part of our business. And I think what's really cool is that it's, uh, it's reciprocal, because the more we communicate our story and our vision and get buy-in from the community, the more they support the business, the more they see the return on the investment in the food that they receive. Um, so I think it's, it's community building even more than it's fundraising. And, you know, because the way we've structured, you know, non-perishable money, it accrues itself so easily. You know, a, a small company 
operating outside of that economic structure, we will never make the impact that we want without having uh, you know, thousands of people that are thinking the same thing, doing the same thing. Because what it's going to take is it's going to take all of us that are working on the um, nonprofit, reinvestment, community-owned side of things, you know, accruing our capital to be so much more powerful than, than the for-profit side uh, uh, capital that we can then start transforming the entire economy. But I think what's really cool is that we don't need people to like this idea. This idea is more competitive because we can provide a higher quality good at a lower cost that serves the interests of the community long term. And, you know, I think just like the work that the Rodale Institute has done on conventional versus organic farming, conventional works better than organic, sure, but it only works better on like a 40 or 50 year time scale. If you look at a 100-year time scale, organic outperforms conventional in yield and in cost. And I think the same thing is true here with, with our business model. So, you know, the revolution is happening. The movement is here. This is the future of economics. And I think, um, you know, the, the, our work is to help our whole civilization, our whole species, see this um, as soon as we can so that we can really accelerate the progress that we can make um, away from a lot of the, the short-term choices that we've been making lately. Right. I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, two kids who each inherit an equal amount um, from their parents. And, you know, one of them spends it all lavishly and has a gorgeous house and beautiful vacations and a swimming pool and fancy cars. And the other one lives quite modestly. And, you know, but neither of them is making yeah. anything. But at the end, you know, at the end, after 50 years, like the one who's been, you know, stewarding the the uh, the the investment is going to be looking a lot smarter than than the, the prodigal one. Let's go into the into core food. So and we'll, we'll talk about kind of the business model and how you source it and and how you deal with this, you know, in the context. But first of all, like. What is the idea? What is the business and, and where did it come from? As I mentioned, my experience with the with traditional people was really impactful. And I think one was getting surefire empirical evidence that people eat most have have eaten mostly plants forever. Um, and the other was that, you know, communities, traditional communities are focused on reciprocity, whereas modern communities are focused on individualism. And so the goal with Core Foods was just Let's, let's bring business back to its roots, where it's a community-supported collaboration. And then let's bring food back to its roots, which is mainly plants. Um, so I think that's been our focus from day one. Um, the, I think we sort of see in our mission um, that food access, healthy food access, is our most important um, uh, uh, value. And that we see it in two areas. One is people that do have the ability and the access to eat healthy food but don't. And then the other is people that can't afford it or don't have access to it. And so I think, you know, the first project that we targeted was breakfast because we see people either don't eat it or they um, eat garbage, like stopping at a fast food place or eating junky nutrition bars or uh, people just, just end up not eating at all. 
So we created this, you know, perishable oatmeal um, in the shape of a bar that goes in a bar-like package so people, from a marketing perspective, know what to do with it and know where to go. But it only lasts a couple days at room temperature. The ingredients are grown, for the most part, here in California, and there's no, um, there's no you know, fake foods, um, no, no salt, no syrup, no flour, no oil, no, no partial ingredients. Like even the raisins that are in it, we had a choice. Are we going to skin the raisins, leave the skin on, or take it off? And it was, no, you know, every ingredient that we make at Core Foods has all the edible plant parts intact. So if it's non-edible, like a husk of an almond, we can remove it, but we're leaving the whole almond in there. So, um, you know, the past five years we've dedicated to this breakfast project, which I think has been really exciting to see, um, you know, uh, people – a lot of uh, cancer patients feel like we've changed their lives. Um, you know, people that have um, been able to sort of retake control of their body image um, by having a resource that they can trust to be foundationally healthy. Um, because I think, you know, the, the exciting thing for me is that it, we tell people to eat healthy. Everyone tells people to eat healthy. Everyone tells people to eat mostly plants and no garbage. But when you go to the grocery store, everything has a little compromise in it, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of salt, a little bit of natural flavoring, a little bit of whatever, which doesn't matter at a little scale. But when everything that you're eating has a little bit of this in it, you're no longer eating healthy. You're eating a bunch of junk. And every time you try to eat healthy, there's a little bit of junk in it. So you're adding more junk to your junk pile. So I think, you know, we wanted to just say, no matter what happens, no matter how much we sell, no matter how fast the business grows, what we are producing is going to be foundationally healthy with no compromise. And so, um, so I think that, that created our, our first project. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that's being uh, distributed right now? Yeah. So we're in all the Whole Foods in the country except for in Manhattan. And um, we're, we're carried in Costco and um, co-ops and mom-and-pop stores and available online. Okay. And it's called... What's the product called? Uh, yeah, it's called a core meal. Core so meal. It's a, it's a pack of fresh oatmeal to go, ready to eat. Okay. And so it's, it's perishable within two to three days. So how do you ship it? Do you have, distribu- do you have um, production all over the country? Or is, how, how does that work? Yeah, so uh, most of our ingredients are grown here in California. All of our production is right here in Oakland. And then we flash freeze everything we make, and then we distribute it frozen across the U.S. And then our retailers will uh, thaw the items, and then consumers will buy it within a day or two of thaw. Gotcha. Okay, so that, that was project number one. And what, <laughs> what, what came next or what's coming next? What's the next step? Yeah, so I think we learned a lot from working with grocery stores, which was um, and working with you know commercial manufacturing facilities about um, the incentives in the food system and why there are so many challenges with distributing healthy food. And I think the biggest ones are that um, the the higher the shelf life uh, item uh, and the higher the margin, the uh, easier it is to distribute a food product. And that's why you see, you know, shelf-stable um, uh, cereal with, you know, sugar and salt and flour. Basically, any sugar, salt, flour item that's shelf-stable, uh, you see wildly successful throughout the grocery store. And so most of the middle of the grocery store is that. A lot of the edges at this point are that, too. So we, I think, you know, and the whole distribution infrastructure is built around that. 
So I think from this first project, we really realized that um, packaged food is not the future of food and that we are making a great impact in um, having people that, that do eat packaged food have an option that's fundamentally healthy. But what we're doing with our second project is we're trying to reinvent the way that fresh food is distributed and have people finally have access to things that are two-day shelf life, three-day shelf life, not you know, 18 days and beyond, which is what is existing in the grocery store now. And I think, you know, the science behind this is clear that, you know, uh, carbon dating works because organic matter degrades over time. So the idea that something that's a year old is as healthy for you as a day old is just not, not verified by science. So the fresher things are, the, the, more, the more constructed they are, the more things that are there for you, for your body to be nourished by. And so um, what that means is that we are, we are creating the, the, um, the world's first um, produce-only commercial kitchen and restaurant. That part is just our philosophy, that every single thing that comes in the back door of this facility is going to be a whole whole fresh or dried fruit or vegetable. Um, and if we have a coconut lime sauce, we are going to crack those coconuts ourselves and we're going to squeeze those limes ourselves and we're not adding any, um, you know, manufactured ingredients to those things. So we have this facility with this very, very strict foundationally healthy um, uh, ingredient stipulation. And then we're rebuilding distribution for these super fresh items, two, three-day shelf life, by having our own fleet of um, distribution vehicles, which is going to deliver these items to all the grocery stores we currently work with. Um, what's really exciting about that is that a lot of, to be honest, you know, mom and pop stores can't afford to um, sell things at affordable rates because th it's so hard for distributors to access them that they get terrible um, margins on their business. And so by having our own trucks that are already going past them, we're going to be able to work with mom and pop stores and yoga studios and gyms that don't have any refrigerated distribution at all. It doesn't even exist for them. Um, so those, those communities don't even have access to this fresh food on site. Um, and then my, the most exciting part about it is that um, on these routes, we'll also be able to drop food carts into food deserts, areas where people traditionally um, have not had access to fresh food. And we're, part, we're hoping to partner, we're working on a partnership with SNAP to be able to have people have um, receive these meals in a subsidized fashion. But so what this means is instead of sort of the old model, which is make something from one place and then distribute it wildly to the biggest customers around the country, we're making something in one place and we are distributing it as dense as we possibly can within a community so that everyone in the community has access to healthy food in every possible place where they would want to buy it. And I think, you know, you hear from Paul Saginaw with Zingerman's and other people of the local movement that this local aspect to uh, food access and food supply chains is really critical. And I think this is sort of the missing piece between local food systems and, you know, national grocery is that we need this local element to, to exist. So I think with this project, um, you know, I think we're solving, solving a lot of things. One is the world's first produce-only menu that people can finally have access to, and then another is the ability for people to access it. Hmm. So do you see this um, scaling? 
I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you're giving away a lot of, uh, you know, so business secrets right now. I, I'm imagining you're open sourcing the, the whole thing. It doesn't sound like you have a, you know, a sort of um, a greedy mind around keeping things close to the to the vest. What's, you know, o Oakland is one place. What's the what's the growth plan, the scalability? Yeah, no, you know, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up about industry secrets. I think that's a big part of our philosophy, too, which is that, you know, as a steward of a movement, um, it doesn't matter if we do it or if somebody else does it. It just matters that it gets done. So I think we would like nothing more than for uh, McDonald's to listen into this conversation and copy everything we're doing and doing it, do it faster and better than us, honestly, because their organization is more experienced. Um, that would be wonderful and would give us the bandwidth to work on even deeper projects like, you know, multi-crop biodynamic farming and other things that we're very passionate about. Hmm. But I think, um, you know, you're, you're right that the, the scale is key. So, um, and it's, it's local, it's local distribution scaling locally. So we have 15 major cities around the U.S. where our existing food has been the most successful, and we feel like there are large enough markets for this concept. And so over the next year and a half, we're going to be piloting this uh, core kitchen project here in Oakland, in the Bay Area. And then once we've really refined and perfected the model, then we're going to multiply that model across the United States to these 15 cities in the next seven years. And each of them will have, you know, their own local um, commercial kitchen that's produce only that buys as much produce as it can from the local food shed and then distributes densely in that environment so that everyone can have access to healthy food. Hmm. So who, who thinks that they're your competitors? You know, I would have thought that Whole Foods might be a little nervous, you know, not 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 for your um, project specifically, but sort of if this thing took off. But Whole Foods is one of your backers, right? And they, they, they seem to yeah. have been a, a partner. Is there is there anyone out there who is scared for, you know, from a, from a financial perspective about this taking off? Um, I, you know, I think we're um, we're so small at this point that I, I don't think it's a consideration. Um, I think that we the work that we're doing is really, really hard. And there's a reason that, you know, refrigerated distribution is not invested in very much because, um, you know, trucks go down and you lose a whole bunch of inventory and things spoil. And, um, you know, there's all of these problems that aren't present in a, you know, shelf stable old food that you're distributing around um, dry. So, and, and the same thing is true with organic, which is why it's taken a long time for organic to catch on that, you know, with conventional, you can use whoever you want. You don't have to have a lot of paperwork. Um, there's no traceability. So, you know, it's a real advantage, honestly, to, um, to your business if you, if you operate conventionally. But as we've talked about, there isn't the, um, you know, the, the long term, the long term is not there. So I think, um, you know, Whole Foods has been an incredible partner for us. They, they definitely have their own set of challenges from, from being publicly traded, um, and there are, there are all sorts of uh, discussions that they go through internally in terms of, you know, we're called Whole Foods. Why do we have a bakery department? You know, people come in here thinking they're going to eat healthy and they eat cheese and, and, and chocolate. You know, is that really the right statement? And I think, you know, there are constantly challenges with being that size and having investors involved. 
But I think at the end of the day, um, Whole Foods is is a values-led business. They donate 5% of their profit to charity. You know, they have ingredient standards for everything that's in the grocery store. They have incredible partnerships with organizations they created, like the whole Kids Foundation that we donate to and the whole Planet Foundation, you know, creating salad bars for kids in schools and, and helping women in foreign countries with microloans so that they can become producers for Whole Foods. Um, I mean, the work that they're doing is really, really next level. And I think no small part of that is they give microloans to food startups in the United States. And we were one of those to receive one. Um, and so I think Whole Foods recognizes that if they want to stay a leader, they need to stay an innovator. And for them, it's critical for them to have partners like us that are bringing this, you know, insane level of innovation and drive um, to the equation in a partnership with them. And, you know, does that mean that their business needs to evolve? Definitely. And I think they know that. And they're already, I think, as was announced last week, launching a whole new line of grocery stores. And they've been trying, especially their work in Detroit, you know, building smaller footprint stores for communities that don't have access. And I think they're working on the same issues that we work on. And I think that that makes it a really natural collaboration, regardless of whose wheelhouse the business ends up being in. Mm. It's funny when you talk about that new line of, of lower uh, cost grocery stores. I was reading about that, but the, my sources somehow all ended up being like Forbes and Fortune and Business Week and Wall Street Journal, where if, you know, when you read from that perspective, it was all about declining profits. Um, you know, it was it was all from a an investor perspective that they're, you know, that they'd sort of tapped out and were growing stale. And you're talking about the exact same need for innovation, but from a totally different value system. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, I feel very blessed to not have to um, answer to investors on a financial level, because I think it's, it's a very short sighted way for us to operate a society. And it's not the whole picture. And I think that, um, you know, it's, that's why it's so exciting that the, the new economy that we're entering into is not one that's based on ownership, where we're going to be so laser focused on the idea of profit that does not matter at all in the health of communities. So, you know, I think, I think Whole Foods is there with us. Whenever we're talking to them internally, there is no discussion of profit. The discussion is impact and distribution and access and suppliers. Um, so I think that, you know, and I think that's true with everyone. I don't, I don't think that there is a, you know, a, a stockbroker on Wall Street that's sitting there thinking that, you know, amassing huge swaths of fortune for himself is the right thing to do for the whole world. But I think that people do think that it's the right, that they're trying to move the right way, and they just don't necessarily know how. And so we're seeing this everywhere, that people are trying to restructure their investment portfolios, and we've got this organic movement, and we're working on clean energy everywhere. And I think the whole human consciousness gets the right way that we need to go, and we're all just trying to tear out of this framework that's been built for us by our recent ancestors to find a new way to frame it all together, which is honestly nothing new. I mean, we've been creating and destroying and rebuilding and evolving our human systems for thousands of years. So I don't, I don't necessarily think this is a cataclysmic, you know, change of the way we've, we're operating. It's just this is a continued evolution. And I think that's honestly, that's the biggest thing to say that I want to say about economics is that, you know, it's, 
it's not that we're redoing or throwing away what we did. Capitalism was an awesome idea that was a great evolution from feudalism. It's just that evolution's never over, and we, we know that there's a better way, and we're, we're working on making it happen. Mm. For, and from my perspective, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of, of um, plant-based food, but the, the bigger impact of, of your success will be just to reduce people's fear of taking that step a little bit. Because I, I don't know your experience. When I, when I talk to people about Charles Eisenstein's ideas, I get a lot of yeah buts, a lot of, you know, that that couldn't work, that it's naive, that it's going to destroy the economy. There's a lot of fear around making those kind of changes around, you know, letting go entirely of having the kind of business that you're describing that is not making those sorts of compromises. Yeah, you know, I think that I think having fear and being human are just about the most most fundamental things about life that I know about. Um, I mean, it's like for us in this business, we've started to use fear as our compass. That anytime we're afraid of something, that gets us really excited because <laughs> that means that that's a clear question that we need to answer right away. And if we do, we're going to get to the heart of the problem. So I think, you know, it's challenging. Every day it's crazy. And every day we get lots of no's and you know you can't and but how and but you know, if you're not getting those questions, you're you're not a, you're not on the frontier. You're not innovating at the level that you could. So I think it's it's really good confirmation from for us that um that we're doing work that matters. I love that. I love that. So a couple more questions. One is I'm having trouble um, picturing a produce only menu. And if I'm having trouble, then other people are having more trouble. <laughs> so yeah. to, what, what do you serve? What does it look like? What do you call it? Yeah, so, so it's, um, it's a, a fast casual lunch. So it's quick, you know, it's under five minutes. So it's the same kind of menu that you get anywhere. We've got, you know, burritos, and we've got wraps, and we've got pastas and things like that, except every ingredient is just fruits and vegetables. So, you know, we've got a, a, a burrito that's wrapped with a collard leaf and instead of a tortilla. And inside of it is avocado and potato and cherry tomato and, um, you know, garbanzo bean spread. And, um, and it's all covered in a freshly cracked coconut lime sauce. And we've got, you know, your pasta dish that you can get, except the noodles are made of of zucchini um, and you can get, you know, your sun-dried tomatoes and your, um, you know, Thai almond sauce on top and um, and then we've got grill components that are um, like you know a, a portobello mushroom pizza so instead of a crust it's the actual whole cap of the mushroom you know filled with our um, you know basil walnut pesto and um, some cashew cheese and um, or veggie kebabs or um, you know uh, patties like a black bean patty uh, black bean sweet potato patty um, with a you know a corn compote on top so I mean these are I think I get the most excited about anything when I talk about this menu because you've never had something more fresh and more explosively delicious in your life than when you've had a plate of you know hundred percent produce food with hundred percent produce sauce so I think we are we are not interested in um, in being labeled as a um, you know a healthy restaurant. We are the freshest 
most delicious restaurant that you would ever come to. Um, and, and I think that people that, that go to the existing options are going to realize as soon as they try it that they don't feel like having this greasy, gut-filled meal that's going to make them slow and grumpy and go back to work. They want to be energized and enlivened and, you know, mouth-watering in their lunch experience. Mm. So my, my last question is about bringing this food to, to food deserts, to communities that typically over the last you know, 50 years or so have subsisted on cheap, low quality calories on subsidized high fructose corn syrup. Their pleasure foods tend to be meat, sweets, fatty foods. And I've seen, you know, efforts where people were to sort of bring healthy produce, heavy foods into the communities and people reject it. So what's what's been your experience and what's the solution to to not, to not just access, but desire. Right. Well, I think that, you know, one, one big challenge is that, um, you know, when, when, when people receive subsidies to buy produce, there's a whole bunch of other contingencies that have to go along with them making a meal out of that. Like, you know, do they have a kitchen? Do they, do they know what a good recipe is with cucumber and carrot and tomato that they can buy? And I think that's a, that's a real solution that, that we're trying to overcome with our food cart program is that our menu at the core kitchen is 100% produce. But, you know, there are 130 recipes that go into 12 dishes at the core kitchen. It's pretty complicated to cook in 100% produce fashion. But by delivering a completed meal that's ready to eat that's 100% produce, we overcome all of those um, education and knowledge access barriers that can prevent people that want to eat healthy from, from actually being able to do so. I think, you know, there's a big section of people that want to eat healthy that are not doing it for whatever reason. I think there's definitely another section of people that, for whatever reason, are, are, don't know that they want to eat healthy. And, um, and those people, I think there are all sorts of other aspects in terms of, you know, manipulation and food marketing and addiction um, to, uh, you know, sugar and salt and fat um, that, that, are, that are even larger issues to uh, address. But I think, you know, just like any business, you've got, you've got your early adopters and you've got your mainstream and we want to hit the lowest hanging fruit first. And there are a hell of a lot of people that, that want to eat healthy, that we can get eating healthy um, by offering them this exciting of an option. And I think the first way to access those people that are a little bit farther away is for the early adopters to bring them. Um, so I think we're going to have a lot of programs to encourage people um, and subsidize people in bringing their friends and having their friends come try. Um, because I think, you know, as, as you've experienced with your life history and going from you know, eating garbage to eating healthy, it's, you know, when, and I've been there too, when you're, when you're eating, when you're eating garbage, you're stuck in a rut and it's hard to get out of it. But as soon as you get a taste of what it's like to be this fulfilling being that healthy eating can serve you, that becomes addicting and exciting. So I think our mission is just get people in the front door the first time um, and then build the resources on them feeling safe, continuing with that journey. Mm. So it seems like one of the requirements for your success is really to build bridges in the community. And I know the, the Bay Area is a particularly volatile place. You know, there have been sort of viral videos about, I think, you know, LinkedIn 
guys kicking off um, local guys playing uh, playing soccer in a park. There's a lot of argument and fight about BART and, you know, Google buses and gentrification. And to some extent, the the two communities you're trying to bridge is, you know, sort of low income, um, you know, communities of largely of color and the type, the type of people who would eat the food that you're talking about are like, you know, I could imagine like a Google kitchen serving a, a produce only lunch. And it, it seems like it's going to take some sort of um, bridge building to to connect mm. those communities in, uh, in in solidarity as opposed to in, in perceived zero sum competition. Yeah. You know, um, I think I think the communities are a lot more similar than people give them credit for. Um, and and we have this discussion constantly with funders about food access that I think there are as many people that can afford healthy food that are not eating it as people that can't afford it that are not eating it. And, you know, I think people that can't afford it, there are probably more for sure for that reason. But I think that the, the challenge is the same, is that people people aren't eating healthy food. And so, um, you know, people do it for all different reasons. And a lot of it is education and a lot of it is um, is the addiction aspect. But oftentimes people that are in um, low income circumstances I've experienced are more interested in the knowledge and the, the power that healthy food can bring as people that are in higher income areas that sort of have an established worldview and have something that works well for them, but there are just some, some issues they'd like to work on. Mm. Um, so I think that we may have more success in you know, having people in low income areas um, be our early adopters in eating healthy and, and changing their lives. Um, but I think that you know, the, in just the early work that we've done in the core kitchen, um, you know, talking to catering managers at large companies, you know, their job is to make people happy. And they tell us, listen, if there's not a, a chicken sandwich on the menu, people are going to be unhappy. Um, so, you know, there, there's a big challenge in those environments, too, to sort of the, the status quo of unhealthy eating being the standard. Um, I think, you know, a big ally of ours is that um, vegetarians and vegans and people with special diets and people that want to eat healthy have been sort of the silent um, minority, if not majority, for a long time where they're always unhappy with the food that's available and the food that's being served uh, to them. And so I think if we can um, promote and market and advertise this option as legitimate now, my hope is that all of the people that want to eat healthy and have had special diets, who I'm confident is the majority at this point, will start complaining more because you've all been too quiet for too long and we have the resources to eat healthy. All we need is the support. Fantastic. So for folks who are listening, if they are in the uh, San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, wh where do they find you? How do yeah, they so you can you'll you'll find the core kitchen in uh, right above the 12th Street BART in downtown Oakland um, starting this fall. And we will be delivering items from the core kitchen to uh, grocery stores, Whole Foods and uh, Rainbow and Berkeley Bowl and mom and pop stores all over the Bay Area shortly thereafter. And then we'll also be dropping food carts um, in uh, food deserts and in hot lunch locations. 
So if you want a food cart, if there's a location that you know is going to be great for this, um, you know, please send an email to me, uh, Corey at corefoods.com, um, and we'll, we'll, in, we'll include you in part of the plan. Great. And that's Corey, C-O-R-E-Y. Yep. Okay, cool. What about people who aren't so lucky, who, uh, who live uh, where they can't get to your, kit, your commercial kitchen and restaurant and food carts in Oakland? Is there, is there uh, a mailing list? Is there some way that we could um, hope for your, your stuff in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, visit corefoods.com. There's a newsletter link at the bottom. Um, you know, once a month we send out updates on the progress of this project. And I'd be happy to get the advice and the ideas of people um, in areas that want to see this offering. I think we've actually already heard that uh, really strongly from um, a, a, a town in Michigan, and we're working on figuring out if we can integrate them quicker into the plan. Um, I think an, another aspect is that we don't have to do this by ourselves. You know, if, if you're inspired to, to work on this concept with us, you know, you, we, can, we can provide you with a lot of the information that, it's, that we've built to, um, to try starting this concept here. And so I think we're about impact and we're about the movement progressing. So anyone that's interested and passionate in this idea, you know, we're an open book to helping you make it succeed. Fantastic. So I don't, I don't know if you um, hadn't had a chance to listen to one of my recent podcast guests, Ben Chesler um, of Imperfect, but he's, he might be a good, a good contact. He started in Oakland a, uh, like a, C, a CSA type for the uh, produce that gets thrown out by farmers because it's not pretty enough for, for stores. So I know they're, they're looking for, for distribution. That might be an interesting uh, connection. Awesome. Yeah, you know, Oakland is just blowing up right now with a food revolution, and it's so exciting to be a part of it. Um, I really think, you know, between the work that People's Food Co-op and, you know, Ben with Food Recovery Network and Mandela Foods and even large companies like Kaiser are doing in Oakland, I mean, I think we're going to be the model for, for the healthiest city in America very soon. Mm, and just, just, just in time to... Uh you know, shift agriculture to intensive biodynamic produce just to uh, <laughs> save, save, save yourselves from becoming not just a food desert, but a real desert. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, that's another aspect of the work that we're doing is that, um, you know, we don't advertise it too much because the food is primarily delicious and the most flavorful way to eat, but the food we serve is also vegan. And, um, you know, when you grow plants, you use, uh, you know, about a hundredth of the water that you're using for uh, when you're, when you're growing animals. Um, so I think, you know, a big way that California can improve um, its drought situation is by um, promoting more, you know, produce only um, uh, uh, menus. Right. And, and not only that, when I when I started eating well, I didn't smell as bad. I, did, I needed fewer showers. So if people if people want that tangible. <laughs> well, we've got we got a beautiful ocean right here, too. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Corey Rennell, thank you so much. This is so inspiring. I'm so happy to hear the energy behind this and the the guts 
and the courage and the, and the the giant big heartfelt world inspired vision. I'm going to be keeping an eye out and uh, hope hopefully this will come to a community near me and near you, dear listener, in the near future. Awesome. Well, Howard, it's been a real pleasure, and I really enjoy the leadership that you bring to the whole movement, and um, and it takes a community. So it's a it's a blessing to be here with you. Right on. All right. Be well, Corey. All right. Much love. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you liked that interview as much as I did. If you do and you'd like to do a favor to the Plant Yourself podcast, the best thing you could do if you haven't already is go to iTunes and write a little review and give us some stars. That helps us rise in the rankings so other people can find us and join the movement. You can also, of course, share this episode and any others with friends and colleagues and family on social media or shoot them an email. You can also stay in touch via my weekly newsletter, The Wellness Weekly, and you can get on that mailing list by going to plantyourself.com and signing up at the top right. The, uh, the ad there is for the wellness webinar. I'll start doing those quite soon, probably on a monthly or bi-weekly basis. Uh, in the meantime, if you're in the North Carolina Piedmont region, you can attend a, a live dinner. You can check that out at plantyourself.com dinners. If you have opinions about the podcast, things you like, things you don't like, please, I'd like to hear them. You can do it anonymously at plantyourself.com survey. Take a couple of minutes and that will help me make the podcast better for you. Garden update. This week we have our seventh rescue chicken in our, in our little sanctuary. The first 24 hours were rough. Believe me when I tell you that the term pecking order can be taken literally, but she's settled in. Beautiful uh, old white hen and is, is pecking away contentedly with the rest of our growing flock. Um, having a lot of problems with the soil. So we're trying to figure out right now how to find someone who can test our soil and tell us what's missing. A lot of plants were thriving in the greenhouse and are now doing not so well. In terms of our harvest this week, the big news is blackberries and sugar and snap peas and a couple of zucchinis. We pulled out a fair amount of garlic and the last of the parsnip harvest. And I could post a picture of that on the uh, Plant Yourself Facebook page for people. There's one parsnip that came out looking remarkably like a woman's hips and legs. Um, so I don't know if Facebook will actually let me post that one, but I will try. And whatever you're eating this week, I hope it's delicious. And I hope it nourishes not only you, but our beautiful planet as well. And as always, until next time, be well, my friends. <laughs>